Good, I'd like to ask for your attention tonight. Some thoughts on the famous middle way. Um, That middle way is a metaphor that has become synonymous with the Buddhist teaching. Um, and in fact, um, there are many middle ways. Yeah? What sounds like a balanced middle uh, actually has a couple of applications if you look at the teaching of the Buddha. First of all, a middle way is not a lukewarm compromise between uh, what you really like and what you think you can get away with. Yeah? This is not the idea of the middle way. It's not a sort of slimy compromise, uh, uh, negotiating basically uh, your desires and fears and at the same time what you perceive to be the uh, expected behavior from your part. The most famous of the middle ways goes back to the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the sermon of the turning of the setting in motion of the wheel of the law, as it is named. And in that short text, uh, a text that is basically a synopsis of a teaching situation of which we know has uh, lasted a lot longer than the synopsis we have, although the synopsis is quite potent and uh, quite full of wonderful things, uh, naming the two extremes and naming the Eightfold Path and naming um, the Khandas and naming a definition of suffering and um, naming the Four Truths and naming uh, what is much less known for key verbs connected with those truths. Um, this particular text is generally what is most often referred to when the middle way is spoken of. And there the middle way is portrayed as the path that avoids the extremes of sensory indulgence and on the other side the extreme of self-mortification. So this is the famous middle way. Now the middle way is, uh, even in that famous text, is not really a terribly broad sort of highway it's not really sort of the the uh, mass turnpike size uh, route it is more like a razor's edge you know? so the middle way sounds like a great grand avenue to walk on but actually most of us find that the middle way actually a when we look ahead it's not there yeah you know? the middle way is uh, the jacket uh, path our footsteps make when we turn back looking where we came from. That's the path we discern. The path ahead of us often we do not discern. Uh, or we have concepts about such a path which then we find uh, invariably quite different from what actually is in really in front of our feet. So let us look at some other applications of the middle way, some of the less famous ones. 
I like to play with that metaphor. Um, I can, at least for part of that uh, play, I have a canonical, I believe to be on safe canonical grounds, and uh, I'll, I'll promise to flag when things get a little more iffy and, uh, and interpretative. Yeah, but the less famous middle way, but maybe the more important middle way, is the middle way that is referred to in the Kajayana Gotta Sutta and the Samyutta Nikaya, a wonderful text in the section on dependent arising, where we have a very terse little text that I now promise to read out to you tomorrow morning. <laughs> and that terse little text uh, says uh, the Buddha with his interlocutor, who is a man called uh, Kachana, one of the grandees of the Buddhist order, a personal he hero of mine. Um, again, not as famous as I quite would like him, but uh, still famous enough to have made the ranks of the, the famous disciple. A man um, most notable for being able to expound in detail what the Buddha has explained only in brief. Yeah. He occurs a number of case, uh, cases where the Buddha lives, leaves a rather cryptic sort of teaching to his monastics, and then they and then walks off. And then the monks kind of puzzled a bit and say, "Well, not quite sure." And then um, they decide to go and ask Mahakajayana. So Mahakajayana plays a little game, says, "Well, what do you want from me? You know, you've had the Buddha. Why do you expect me to do things the Buddha didn't do? Who do you think I am? You know, kind of thing." And then they say, "Well, you know, the master is and so forth." So they kind of they uh, flatter him a little bit, and then he usually uh, is urged to expound in more detail what the Buddha has only left in brief. And usually he does expound. He makes. Um, He's a quite an, an analytic mind, so quite gifted. And then he <clears throat> teases out a few things, and um, the monks are quite happy, but then they oh, have a little bit of doubt, and then they go with that statement of Mahakajayana and go to the Buddha and have this verified. Yeah? And the Buddha, in, again, invariably says, yes, it is, it is well said, uh, Kajayana is wise, I couldn't have done a better job on this one, you better keep that in mind like that. Yeah. So, so he turns up in a number of occasions, very similar scenarios. Um, so, Mahakajayana in this particular instance, together with the Buddha, he doesn't ask a question, the Buddha just informs him that the world is prone to dualist views and to the view either of that things are eternal or that things are um, annihilated at the death of the body. And um, the Buddha tersely says that these two views basically are uh, beset most people's perspective on their own lives and on, the, on their experience in this world. And he then proceeds to say uh, that he will now teach a teaching of the middle. So not a Majima Patipata, not a, a middle approach, basically. Basically, that's the better term approach for Patipata pat than middle way, because middle way, again, I believe, is a little misleading, speaking of a well-paved route ahead, clearly visible. A middle approach sounds more like the practical experience that we actually have to find our way. Yeah? 
informed by the teaching of the Buddha and some of our own experiences, we find a middle approach going forward. So the Majima Patipata is uh, side by side with the Majjena Dhammadesana, the teaching of the middle. So this teaching of the middle, he now tells uh, Kachaina Gotana in, 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 in Gotta in the tersest of terms and says, he who has seen the arising of things will not deny that there is something in this world. Yeah. In other words, he refutes the annihilationist view, which says basically nothing really exists. You know, it's all either it's either illusion. Yeah, that's what some of the Vedic teaching is famous for, turning this whole thing into one big illusion. And the Buddha is adamant in other places than in this sutta, but also in this sutta, very very much in the footnotes, he is adamant that this what we experience is not an illusion. Suffering is real, liberation is real, happiness is real, even chocolate is real. Yeah? It's highly perishable, it doesn't deliver to the extent uh, you expect it to, uh, but it does taste good. If you like chocolate, chocolate does taste good. This is not an unreal experience. Uh, it's not yours, it doesn't last, you can't get enough of it, you pay a relatively high price. Yeah? Um, 20 seconds in your mouth, you know, quite a while in your belly, and then months and months on your hips, basically. That's what they say where I come from. And it doesn't uh, leave you with satisfaction. Yeah. It does leave you with a temporary good feel. Uh, depending on your gender, you may get more endorphins out of this than... Uh, the other sad gender, um, but it does not make you happy, it does not make you free, and its effect is not lasting. So, so but the Buddha says this is real, you know, this is really happening. You're not just imagining this. This is not just some grand cosmic illusion in which you're kind of involved. And your task is not to pierce the illusion and see that there is nothing there. You know? The Buddha says there is quite something there. Yeah? And it's important that you understand the ingredients of that which is there. These ingredients are conditioned. Uh, you have a say in how the thing plays out. Um, and if you understand what is being played here, what you really want, and what is actually on offer, and what is played, and what your mind makes of it, if you understand that, then you can be free. It doesn't say it's not real, or it's not happening, or it's an illusion. That's an important distinction. So, back to Kachaya Gotana. Oh, what does he hear? He hears the Buddha teaches him, on one hand, that the eternalist view is not correct, because the eternalist view says nothing ever passes away. Yeah? And the Buddha says quite clearly, if you see what clear sight and true understanding the disappearance of conditioned phenomena you will not go around pretending that conditioned phenomena are uh, eternal you know, either by taking uh, yourself to be eternal or by taking the god to be eternal or by taking chocolate to be eternal or happiness derived from chocolate 
On the other hand, if you see things arise, and you, need, you know how uh, arising takes place, samudaya takes place in your experience, as we go back to the term from this morning, then you will not deny that something actually happens and something actually has taken shape and come into being. Yeah? And the, then he continues, the wise person understands that, is dependent, that it is dependent on condition that things arise and it is dependent on conditions that things disappear. And then he proceeds to teach dependent arising. Yeah. Which is kind of, seems a little terse, but it's a major, huge statement. And he says, this is the teaching of the middle, to understand that between a teaching that favors being and a teaching that favors non-being, both are classic positions, not just in Indian philosophy, but also in, in, in Occidental philosophy. He says, both of them are partially true, neither of them is fully true. And uh, what is true is that if we look more close, you see that things come into being through the arising, um, through the coming together of particular conditions. And it is with these conditions that something starts to happen, and with the falling away of conditions that something will evaporate or disappear. So, we have a very crisp statement with not much explanation outlining that the alternative between an eternal, the postulate of an eternal truth, either a God or Son or a Self, and the postulate uh, of that all things that exist will come to be annihilated after their span has uh, basically been exhausted between those two diametrically opposed conditions with which the Buddha does not side. He says both of these positions have understood only a part of, namely this part has the, uh, understood the arising and this part has understood the disappearance and the, the dissolution of things. But what I teach is an approach of the middle, and this approach acknowledges that things arise on the basis of conditions, persist on the basis of conditions, and vanish on the basis of conditions, or with the disappearance of those conditions. This is big. So, 1400 years before Hegel, he has basically identified the dialectical principle. Then he continues, whoever understands dependent arising in such a way will become endowed with, um, who truly understands this, will become endowed with uh, a knowledge, a knowing independent of others. The famous aparapachayanyana. This is a knowledge or a, a quality of understanding that um, identifies you as a stream enterer, as one who has irrevocably entered into the stream leading to awakening. That's what you're expected to aim for, yeah? If you happen to not be a stream enterer, that's definitely your first stop, yeah? So to, to hold this true <laughs> as a possibility for yourself, to uphold this possibility as a serious, uh, as a serious vision for yourself, yeah? Developing an understanding that is capable of true independence from others. Yeah? That's the only type of independence you really can gain. Yeah. 
it's an independence in your understanding of dependent arising and it is such an understanding that makes you basically for the first time completely independent in your progress on the path from others from people who know more or from support you or who create an ambience of practice or so once you have that then you know you can go this alone you don't need validation anymore you don't need proffering up you don't need buttressing in your you know when you flounder or when you're kind of you don't need inspirational props anymore you don't need heroes anymore still nice to have them but you don't need them anymore you can actually walk it on your own this is a powerful statement so this small little teaching the juxtaposition of the path of eternalism yeah, which if you look at say um, most monist religions are eternalist religions from a buddhist point of view well, they're basically stating uh, actually they're they're partially eternalist. They state one part, namely God, is eternal, and the other part, namely me, is not eternal. Yeah. And the other side is generally a materialist position. It says basically there, you know, there isn't really anything happening. You know? Nothing is going to go on. Nothing is going to continue. You just go back to the elements. It's the kind of ashes to ashes, dust to dust, without God. Yeah. This is a version of uh, thinking that has not just uh, been occurring in the West. Uh, you know, materialists have already existed at the time of the Buddha. And um, so he will have had contemporaries in his day who upheld both of these positions. Uh, certainly one position was upheld by the Brahminical tradition, uh, much of the Upanishadic tradition. Uh, a large part of it would have upheld the notion of... Uh, a deity or of eternity and uh, on the other hand you had a rather probably small group uh, fairly colorful and motley crew uh, usually later day in india they were called the sarvakas famous for being pretty rugged materialists you know they say we're not interested in a nibbana we're interested in getting good stuff here and now you know don't tell us about the future we want happiness that we can count and lay our hands on there's many brands of this type of philosophy. Um, you'll find it in uh, in the West. Carpe diem, yeah. Grasp the day by its hour. Uh, basically, get what you can as long as you can get it, yeah. And and run, yeah. Or you know the more extreme version of this would be après moi le déluge, you know. Uh, after me, uh, whatever you call this in English, the flood, yeah. Sort of the insistence that basically you don't care for anything for consequences. Important is how things feel now to you, and whatever comes after you either don't care or you don't think it is worth caring for. So, our first middle way is the middle way between the two extremes of sensory indulgence and of mortification. Yeah. Understand, please, that uh, in the days of the Buddha. His teaching was found to be rather soft. His lifestyle, the proposed lifestyle for his monks and nuns, was considered to be rather soft. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot more competition on the ascetic side of things. So the Buddha was criticized for accepting invitations to rich people, for eating chosen food, 
for being dressed in woven cloth, which was not easy to come by in those days. And he was getting some flack from uh, spiritual practitioners more on the ascetic end of the spectrum and saying, you know, (laughs) these these Buddhist monks, you know, they kind of, they, they have a nice life. You know, they meet wealthy people, they, they fill their bellies. While we kind of, we just eat a handful of grains, or we just, you know, as the, as the, as the moon wanes, we stop, we eat less and less. And then as the moon waxes, we eat a little more, or we just, we live during the daytime when it's hot, we're living out in the open, and at night when it's cold and damp, we're living in the forest. So we intentionally choose to make our lives difficult or we do all kinds of um, unappetizing practices you know if, the, if you read the scriptures there's a number of those practices quite outlined outlined in quite some detail the buddha did some of this for a, a number of years as many of you will know he's quite graphic in the description of the outcome of this practice you know? that he couldn't uh, he couldn't evacuate his bowels anymore because when he was squatting down, he would kind of tumble over. He couldn't hold his balance. You know? Then when he touched his belly, he would actually touch his spine. And his skin, you know, for which he's famous later on, that it is always golden colored. His skin was black. You know? So, uh, And there was a few other things. Um, yeah... Um, a description of his rear part it was looking like a hoof. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he had lost all, all not just uh, not just the flab, but also uh, as a governor's son, but also his muscles. And um, yeah, so we have to assume that he's taken this this asceticism quite serious. Uh, in fact, he was held in high esteem by his five friends who expected grand things to happen for him and when he started um, receiving Sujata's offer of milk rice they turned away from him in disgust saying you know he's uh, the Gautama the ascetic has turned away from the practice Gautama the ascetic has uh, uh, has fallen prey to the to the vice of what is it? Eating much gluttony, yeah, yeah. So he's kind of he's eating rice. He's eating milk rice again and hanging out with, with, uh, <coughs> with cowherd girls. You know, this usually is a <coughs> is a fairly is the other side of Indian practices. You know, hanging out with cowherd girls usually. You know, this is what Krishna does. You know, when he's playing with his flute and he hasn't been always very ascetic in his approach to to uh, the, sh- the coward girl. So um, the Buddha uh, was looked down upon and uh, basically they left him. And he, as you know, he came to some conclusions about ascetic lifestyle and finally settled for um, a particular type of lifestyle which now constitutes our next middle way, which is interesting. The, and his, the next middle way is the middle way between, say, a Brahminical lifestyle, which is geared to the uh, acquisition of fortune, wealth, many cows and many sons, and a long life, 120 years. Satavisati Vasani, 120 years, many cows and many sons. Is this your vision of happiness? How is 
It's not really very popular these days, isn't it? 120 years sounds a lot. Cows, no, it's troublesome. And sons, probably also troublesome. Yeah. So it's gone out, that model has gone out of fashion. At the other end of the spectrum was the ascetic movement. And remember, the Buddha is in his day only one of many spiritual seekers who were basically, who have, um, they have, they have gone off mainstream spirituality. Yeah? Mainstream spirituality, although there is some discussion around this, uh, was a particular brand of Vedic teaching called the Brahminical tradition. From sort of a sober point of view of religious, comparative religion, it is probably uh, a tradition that is not really at the peak of its, of its uh, vitality. It is fairly ritualized. It has a clear uh, cosmological order that is translated by the people who have a say, not just as a cosmological order of their particular religion, but it is the order of society at all. Yeah? So in other words, not following this particular understanding of how to live is not an option. Otherwise, you're basically an outcast. And precisely that is what most of the other religious seekers were. They were outcasts. They were uh, not technically outcasts in terms of their varna, in terms of their caste, but they were they had left society in a much more dramatic way than you would leave society today. Even if you become a monk or a nun, you don't leave society in the same way today uh, as, say, if you um, leave for a homeless life in the days of the Buddha, because that meant your family would consider yourself, you, you consider you as somebody lost, somebody dead. You were not doing your duties as a son or as a daughter. You were not producing offspring. You were not looking after your ailing parents. You were not in any way contributing to the GNP. You were basically a beggar and an, out, an outlaw in some way. It also meant quite practically you didn't have any old age pension and there were no hospitals and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't avail yourself of the national health service or something if something went wrong with your monastic life. Well, this is all not quite the case nowadays, even if you're a monk and I have been one and you never quite as much outside of society nowadays. Uh, even though society may have a few opinions about you and perceptions of your lifestyle, you're not really to the extent outside of this society as you probably would have been in the days of the Buddha. So the people who left society, they usually led a decidedly uh, determined lifestyle. Some of that lifestyle was quite erratic, so there were groups of, of wanderers and religious seekers around who were uh, holding all kinds of theories. Some of them had women, some of them didn't, um, some of them were famous, the, we, we know of teachers who had hundreds and hundreds of disciples. Some of them were probably fairly uh, small, uh, but they had a number of views that were prevalent. And uh, a considerable segment of that wandering seeker movement was ascetic. Different forms of asceticism, different uh, granularities of uh, body mortification, we uh, come to learn by reading the texts. But 
we can see that there is a substantial part of people who felt that by denying the body its needs and not just not feeding its wish for pleasure and comfort and safety, but actively mortifying their bodies, depriving them of their necessities or inflicting pain on them, was, to be, was seen to be a viable spiritual path and was something that would generate tapas, heat, spiritual power. And the Buddha, in this, on this gamut, was clearly striking a middle path by choosing his lifestyle for bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. He uh, suggested a life that for us now seems probably more ascetic, uh, on the more on the ascetic side, you know, there's no, the celibacy is implicit in this, um, then uh, not, not having many possessions, very few possessions. Uh, if you were really strict, uh, these were... Um, some cloth to wear, uh, an arms ball, uh, a blanket, uh, maybe a mat, maybe a spoon, uh, a razor blade, things like that, but not more. Um, so for us, this is quite, I don't know how many, how many pieces of equipment you have at home. Have you ever counted your possessions? <laughs> you probably have... A, take an acknowledgement of, of your possessions when you move to so. So when you move, uh, this becomes very obvious how much stuff you have. You know, it's always, you're always surprised how much stuff you have uh, acquired when you have to move, when you have to clean out the basement or the attic or go through your shelves or your clothes cupboard. It's amazing what one has. You know. I'm amazed what I, what I have acquired in 10 years, you know have serious choices to make about which trousers to wear and which socks to wear. And 10 years ago, that wasn't an issue. You know, there was basically it was one of five pairs of brown socks and it was, you know, that sweet little brown skirt and a <laughs> really delightful light sort of brown cotton cloth I should kind of wear. And then if it was cold, it would maybe take your third robe along and if you want a little further, so because you have to be with that third robe at dawn, you would take it along. But if you were in the monastery, this was not needed. So that was my, you know, that was my dressing. My dressing decisions were basically fairly simple. You know. Nowadays, it's a question of you know where do I go, how much do I take along, which colors, and so forth. Yeah, it's, a, it's become a lot more complicated. I'm still slightly embarrassed. I still, when I look at the number of socks I own, I, I, I hear myself with stern voice criticizing one of my brethren in younger days who I rebuked for having as, mon as many as seven pairs of socks. And I, <laughs> I felt this, you know, I felt this to be so much on the Brahminical indulgence side that I felt I needed to re rebuke him for this, you know. And I kind of keep hearing myself when I... <laughs> When I look at my bulging sock compartment, you know. So, back to the Buddha and his middle way between a Brahminical life geared or seeking fortune and offspring and uh, an ascetic lifestyle of the many ba bands of spiritual seekers that decidedly... Uh, went against not just their likings, but actually even their needs and even their body's uh, well-being and health. 
Yeah? So we can say that the Buddhist lifestyle of um, utter simplicity and ease of, uh, ease of support, a lifestyle of renunciation, a lifestyle not dedicated, uh, we're dedicated to abstain from dis distractions, a lifestyle that tries to focus all the energies, harness all the mental and physical resources to the contemplative task. That such a lifestyle was considered to be a middle way between these two extremes. Now, because we have on the whole become all quite more indulgent, yeah? our comforts have gone up, our dependencies have gone up, our standards of what we think is normal. You know, what was 30 years ago, luxury is now kind of standard, youth hostel standard. You know, you don't get away with this anymore if you're. It's always moving to be better, at least for some of us. So because of that movement, now monastic lifestyle looks pretty ascetic. Not eating in the evening, no TV, no sex, no bank account. Yeah. That sounds like serious acts of renunciation. In the days of the Buddha, this was probably perceived to be much more mild than it is perceived now. So we can say his choice of lifestyle was decidedly non-ascetic. The, the, the grimmest type of ascetic practice he allowed his monastics was not to lie down at night. Understood to be a temporary practice, uh, a practice to strengthen your will, to strengthen your capacity to cope with weakness and low energy levels, and uh, to uh, make you aware of your needs. Yeah. So sometimes... Uh, People in monasteries do this sort of practice, usually under, only with the agreements of their teachers, and uh, they do that for a while. Yeah? These were not standard practices to be kept up most of your life. I mean, some people have done that. There's famous people have done that. Um, in some monasteries, even in this country, this was uh, the norm. Yeah, Chinese monasteries I visited, and famous Burmese teacher who has passed away a while ago uh, was famous for having done that for about 40 years of his life. You know, which is, if you've ever spent a night without sleeping, whether that be in a bivouac or on a train station or in a meditation hall, then you know this is that rolls off the tongue quite easy. Yeah, sort of staying up a vigil and all night sitting, actually doing that there. Yeah. When the sun goes down, to know you're not going to lie down until the sun goes up. Already that experience is quite a thing. For the next 12 hours, I'm not going to lie down. Yeah. That already does something interesting to your mind. And then actually doing it and going through the various stages, because we, we can all look good and straight and upright for a few hours. But then, you know, we can't for a whole night. Most people start to crumble at some point. You will need... Fatigue, and you will need low, low points in your energy, and you will need to somehow hold this low point. So this is quite a tough thing. Uh, if you try to sit up a few hours, you know what I mean. Um, so this is the utmost ascetic practice the Buddha actually allowed his monks. He has never even encouraged fasting, you know. Uh, Buddhist monasteries are quite um, uneven about this. In Thailand, some monks 
and some monasteries do a lot of fasting. Ajahn Mahabhuva's people, they were always fasting. Ajahn Chah never fasted, to my knowledge, and he never encouraged it. So, yeah. Um, actually, I do remember one case. Yeah, one case I heard. Didn't prohibit it, but he also clearly didn't make a practice of it. So it's, 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 it's important to understand that in many ways, this lifestyle that seems strict from our point of view, when we're not monastics, um, in the days of the Buddha, could fairly be said to be a middle ground between an ascetic lifestyle and the family lifestyle with possessions and wealth, and uh, geared to basically achieve safety and happiness through acquiring goods and being important for, a, a, for you know the the big vi vision of a, a grand family life have much offspring and uh, share your wealth with your kids i'd like to look at another type of middle way oh, by the way for this pond for this particular interpretation i have no canonical basis i mean i can give you plenty of canonical references for how the Buddha's lifestyle of monks and nuns was perceived. I can give you plenty of references for the Brahminical ideal and for the ascetic ideal. But he never said, this is my middle way yeah, uh, to life as a bhikkhu or as a bhikkhuni, yeah, just to be clear. The, third one, uh, the fourth one, which I believe also is a middle way and a profound form of middle uh, approach. Again, I can also not claim canonical uh, quotes that state this middle ground as as a middle way, but I think it will become obvious how it can be easily understood as a type of middle way. And this is uh, referring to two qualities the Buddha refers to as the guardians of spiritual practice. These qualities are called Hiri and Otapa. There's much confusion about these because they are often badly translated. They both refer to morals in different ways. Hiri is a type of quality that we would probably come close to when we uh, speak of our conscience. Yeah. The Buddha, like Socrates, like Jesus, assumed that we have an ethical sensitivity. In other words, we feel things in their rightness or wrongness. Moral rightness or wrongness, not mathematical validity or so. Um, he assumed that there is a value structure in us, and this value structure is in part uh, acquired and in part due to our sensitivity. So, not acquired, but inherent. And Hiri refers to the type that is inherent. In other words, when I live in a way that does not do justice to my inner, inner values, I get in trouble with myself. I get in trouble with my conscience. And my conscience is going to make uh, is going to make a fuss. It, I may wake up at night, I may feel remorse, I may feel uh, grief about myself, um, I may be tormented by uh, becoming more and more aware of the consequences of my actions and feeling bad about this. This quality, Hiri, um, best to understand is as a type of yeah conscience. The other side of the uh, coin is otapa and this is a quality that refers to what I am expected to be a code to be living by by my group, my family, my subculture, my religion, uh, my tribe, 
In other words, it is what I am expected to live up to in terms of my behavior. Now, if I transgress this type of thing, I get not in trouble with myself, but I get in trouble with my subculture. I get in trouble with my family, my religion, my tribe, the people in whose company I live. I get in trouble with my state or my community. It's important to understand that the Buddha says these two are our guardians. They are what are the guardians of spiritual practice. If those two are not in place, development is difficult. So he validates both of them. Sometimes these are translated as shame or fear of consequence or shame and guilt. Or, you know, there's all kinds of translations out there that basically make us um, think of maybe some of our Christian conditioning, if you have had Christian conditioning, and for some of uh, Christ Christians, ex-Christians or uh, folks on the way to be ex-Christians, <laughs> uh, these terms are highly charged. You know? And it's important to understand the psychological dimension of these particular terms. So, ideally also, obviously my personal sense of uh, propriety, my personal sense of shame and conscience is identical with the expectations my particular subculture, group, tribe, religion holds. Yeah? That's the nice theory. What I feel is appropriate and what I feel is moral is also shared by my group as, and is being seen as moral. Unfortunately, uh, the practical truth seems to be that they're never identical. Yeah? That, you know, they, there's some overlap there, but there's often quite a bit of discrepancy. In other words, there are things that, according to my society, are quite okay, but I, I'm very clear that they're not okay for me. You know? Our society may uh, consider, other, on the other hand, may consider things to be not okay, while I personally feel actually that's quite okay. Yeah. Okay, this is too abstract. Yeah. Akinjino, nighttime, cologne, little traffic, he drives on his bicycle. He feels quite okay driving through a red light because there's nothing happening. You know, he sees there's no danger to himself, there's no danger to other people. Uh, according to Akinjino's conscience, this is quite okay on his bicycle to drive through a red light. No problem. I do not sleep, lose any sleep over this. Uh, if somebody representing the law is there and witnesses this deed, then uh, this is not okay. You know? I may get a fine. If I complain, I may get a double fine. Yeah. <laughs> Disrespect to the officer. So uh, the, the state and the law, and particularly traffic laws, and the people who impose them on me, they have clear feelings that what I do is not okay and that I need to be fined for this. If I'm young and pretty and kind, then, and, uh, and maybe a woman, then I may get away with a rebuke. But uh, if I'm a kind of adult male, maybe with a moustache or a beard even, I have no way I get away with that. Yeah, I get a fine, definitely. So, there is a clear discrepancy between my personal moral sensibility around this issue and the, the people who enforce law in my place. Yeah. Which I think is a very simple, slightly 
infantile example, but I guess you gather my you you catch my gist. Often we feel things are not okay that we are maybe even compelled to do, say, going to the army or um, or being completely within the bounds of the law and doing some corporate stuff or um, eating meat, you know, things which our societies are quite adamant about are perfectly all right. In fact, they're, you know, hunting or, you know, we, we may have all kinds of things, you know, in, in this particular subculture, certain things are quickly off, off limits. And in, uh, if you go a little further from here, then, you know, you find another group at another house and then it's perfectly all right to do and what we do is kind of weird here. So there is some overlap and yet also some discrepancy. And we need to find a middle way between holding our own values, holding our own conscience, and holding the values of our societies. It would be foolish to assume that I can live against the values of my society and not be punished. I know no society, I know no community, I know no uh, outfit of of whom you could be part of that wouldn't impose some rules on you. And if you infringe on those rules, you will, you know, you'll get consequences. Well, depending on your outfit, they, they may be quite severe. If you decide that you come clean of your mafia life, you may lose your life in the process. If you want to leave your church, you know, somebody will come and tell you that yeah, you're going to lose your soul, maybe. Who knows? Or that you that it's selfish to not want to pay church taxes or something like that. You may be, you know, somebody will tell you something about this. Uh, there's time in our lives when we're particularly sensitive to morals, usually uh, with a sort of slightly self-righteous tinge to it. That particular period is called adolescence. Uh, it is a, a strange period. Um, we find, many of us find ourselves quite in isolated when we experience this. We're living between worlds. We're no longer really kids and we're not quite grown ups, although we feel that way. Uh, we believe that way and we don't behave that way. Um, and some people let us know this. And we're quite observant. We're quite perspicacious. You know, we see things very clearly. We know where people fake it, or we know where people are fishy, or where the discrepancies between what he says and what he does. Yeah, this is easy to see. T teenagers are really good at seeing that and generally letting you know when they feel that way, uh, particularly if you happen to be a parent or so. Um, and then they may feel for a time that it's perfectly enough to go by one's own compass, by one's own moral orientation, that that is enough. I don't really need to bother about what my family or my tribe or my club or my country or my uh, thinks about me. It's enough that I feel that way and then that makes my actions right. If I stick to my own moral compass, I will act correct. Yeah. I'm only accountable to this moral compass which we all know is a typical adolescent, self-righteous and slightly infantile behavior. It's beautiful, it's sensitive, we all need it. At the same time, we all know that people can be quite selfish in their uh, higher moral sensitivity or freshly acquired high moral sensitivity. You, you may have encountered teenagers in that way. Sometimes it's also quite impressive. Yeah? If eight-year-olds decide to stop eating meat, 
So this is impressive because they realize this involves killing and I don't want to do this. And uh, I prefer to give up on, on this and uh, live with a feeling of non-killing rather than with a feeling of uh, eating enjoyable textures that come at other people's expense or at other, other beings' expense, let's put it like that. If we, on the other hand, follow what our tribe or our church or our state or our subculture tells us, then we may get really into major trouble you know, because sometimes this isn't really reconcilable with our own inner values. Yeah. Um, sometimes that can go off in a really big way. I, I live in a place where not so long ago, uh, at least for a dozen years, things went really badly wrong. Where you know, substantial part of society decided to kind of do away with a, a huge segment of people who were until up till then were citizens, integrated people, and uh, decided that these people not just needed to be ostracized, but basically needed to be killed, and they proceeded to kill six million of them. You know, this wasn't just kind of Jew-hating talk. This was actual standard policy. You know, normal trains, normal train tables were used to cart people off into death camps. This wasn't just a few acting out guys. This was, you know, a whole system was doing that. A whole state was doing that. People knew this, pretended not to, tried not to, but it was clear. It is now clear. <laughs> Everybody knew, at least as, as, as 19, late 1941, it was clear that this is happening. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of collusion with this. Even people who felt this wasn't kosher, uh, basically, there was an immense amount of collusion of a huge, huge segment of a society who just went ahead with this. So this would be the other extreme. So we can get really into trouble by doing things that are considered to be lawful and considered to be even necessary, deemed for state and freedom and uh, loyalty for fatherland and so forth. Um, and we can really get in trouble with this. We can uh, make such sacrifices not just in times of war, but also in times of peace. When we engage in behavioral, that may be still legal, but uh, conflicts with our sense of morality. And we will have to pay a price for this in some way. We will have to live with our, with, with our hearts, with our conscience. So finding a balance between what I embrace as a lived ethic, and what I am part of, a society with which I may agree or disagree in major areas, but as long as I am part of this society, will have a say in my life, will have views, will have perceptions about me, and I will have to live with the perceptions these people hold of me because I will need their friendship, I will need their neighborhood, I will need their food supply, I will need their you know, job economy, I will, and so forth. So I, I cannot really exempt myself from their values while being part of their society. This is not possible. If I try to, uh, they will let me know. We have a lot of social anxieties and fears. This is for good reason. In evolutionary terms, it's not so long ago. If you were on your own, you were basically meat. Survival is possible in the group. 
If you fall out with your group, it means you're dead. This is no longer the case in the same way. But we have a couple of instincts in place. Some of our social fears reverberate with that basic fear around being outcasts, chased out, hounded out into the forests and left to the dogs, basically. So this is, uh, ex explains some of our social awkwardness around peer group pressure or about, you know, what are the others doing before I make up my mind what is appropriate for me. So this is not very far away in our minds. We all know that. If you have any doubts, just... Just go to your next big train station and try to, in the morning at 8 o'clock and everybody hurries to work, you know, try to kneel down and tie up your shoelaces, placing your bag left and right and being a, an obstacle. Just trying to find out what that feels like. Yeah. Just being a nuisance to 100 people who try pushing behind you. Yeah. Then you know something about what social fears mean, or what social awkwardness mean, or embarrassment. It's really hard work doing this kind of thing. Even if you think quite independently, and you feel quite independent, and you don't care what other people think about yourself, you will care if they start cursing at you, and nudging you, and letting you know that you're a nuisance. Withstanding affect of that nature is not easy to hold. So... Finding a middle way seems to be a major task for many of us in, and seems to involve uh, a number of years. Finding what, how to bring this inner being in as much congruence with our behavior, our lifestyle, our way of acting outside, so with what we are being seen. Yeah? Bringing in as much of that inner being and living that is a real task, you know. And if you've ever gone through a life transition, then you know what I mean. If you've ever moved out of a circle of friends because something just didn't sit right anymore, or if you left the church, or a marriage, and the family that goes with that marriage, um, or you're, you know, you move away from a group of schoolmates, or you tell your people that you're giving up your job and your friendships, and your money, and you're going to live in a monastery. Yeah. That will tell you a few things. Or, after a while, you decide to leave a monastery and tell your monastic friends that you're going to leave them, give up their lifestyle. That will also tell you a few things. Yeah. Any major life transition will tell you something about how difficult it is, how dependent we are from others, how grateful we are, how uh, powerful human beings can touch us, and still we may need to move on. Still we may not be able to share in what they have agreed is consensual reality, perceptual world they inhabit, um, let alone behavioral and uh, ethical outlook in terms of you know what they vote for and how they make their money and how they spend their money and how they... Uh, divide their time and what relationship they have to the earth and to other people who are not immediately as privileged as they may be. Yeah, this is difficult. We know that. When you have moved through one of these, you will be faced with anxieties. You will be faced with loss. You will be faced with grief. You will be faced with doubt, generally. If many people tell you 
that what you think or do or plan is wrong or dangerous or foolish or unreasonable or doesn't work, it, you know, if you don't have a little bit of doubt at that stage, probably you have a problem. Probably something's wrong with you. It's the rare person who does not feel when all his friends tell him that he or she may be uh, barking up the wrong trees, <laughs> that you don't have a little bit of doubt about this. And if you consider this and you move on, uh, you will need to be willing to let go and to feel the grief for losing people who were maybe kind people, who are not bad people, but you cannot continue being there. Or you cannot pretending that something that has become important for you, um, you need to live up to in any way that that needs expression, not just personal holding privately, sort of closet values, but actually that needs to be lived. So such a middle path is usually not one in a night or with one heroic decision or so. Yeah, that's it basically. Yeah, middle way between indulgence and self-mortification. Uh, middle way between the eternalism and the annihilationism, the uh, idea that things are permanent and the, the idea that things are completely disappearing and uh, falling into dissolution and there is no continuation of any sort. And as an alternative, the uh, dependent arising uh, as a principle that speaks of, on one hand, a conditional nexus, putting things together. On the other hand, speaks of a transparency, uh, revealing emptiness. If you look at it from this way, you see through it, you see all the conditions piling on top of each other. And if you see in that way, you see how these conditions dovetail, how the water and the flower, uh, the seed and the earth and the warmth and the light make the plant possible and how this plant depends on each one of them. The third one is the path of the monastic, the middle way between uh, the family life geared to acquiring fortune and offspring and the other way is the self-mortification. And finally, the fourth and, you know, I think profound way, uh, underestimated middle path is between the middle path between my responsibility to the voice of my conscience, my ethical, personal sensibility, sensitivity, sorry, and um, the moral values that prevail in my particular uh, community, state, religion, family world, tribal, uh, tribal scene. Finding a middle path in there as a, as a lifetime task. So, Snip, I wanted to read you something. Uh, it's beautiful, it's by somebody who I believe has lost his middle path. He is famous, I believe rightly so. Um, He's not really a contemporary. Um, he's uh, 350 years old. A devoutly Christian man. And um, didn't grow old. Barely 40. And this is what was found after he was dead. It is 
It is part of a piece of propaganda, I have to warn you. Um, it's a piece of propaganda that basically had two parts. One part was the description of the world bereft of God and bereft of a spiritual vision involving God. And the second part of the book, he never got it out, he never saw it published. The second part of the book was a glorious uh, revelation of the principles this God has given his people who turn to him. His name is Blaise Pascal. This is from his Pensée. It's a, <clears throat> um, a short rumination about our relationship to time. I'm not going to read it in French to you, okay? We do not rest satisfied with the present. We anticipate the future as too slow in coming, as if in order to hasten its course, or we recall the past to stop it, its too rapid flight. So imprudent are we that we wander in the times which are not ours and do not think of the only one which belongs to us. And so idle are we that we dream of those times which are no more and thoughtlessly overlook that which alone exists. For the present is generally painful to us. We conceal it from our sight because it troubles us and if it be delightful to us we regret to see it pass away. We try to sustain it by the future and think of arranging matters which are not in our power for a time which we have no certainty of reaching. Let each one examine his thoughts and she will find them all occupied with the past and the future. We scarcely ever think of the present and if we think of it, it is only to take light from it to arrange the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone is our end. So, we never live, but we hope to live, and as we are always preparing to be happy, it is inevitable we should never be so. I'm going to post it, and uh, for those few of you who speak German or French, I'm uh, going to hang up the French one as well. Um, he is... Um, a beautiful stylist. I hope this has made it into the English translation. Yeah, let me leave it at that. Thank you for your attention, your listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.